On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to figure out or try to figure out what the new Buy American bill that Joe Biden just signed, what's that going to mean to us? Is it going to hurt as much as it sounds like it could? We're asking you, listeners, what is the one thing on the anniversary? Because yesterday, well, this week was the anniversary of the first COVID case in Canada. What's the one thing you are desperate to get back to or get to for the first time that you can't wait to do? And we're going to talk about the Olympics. The Olympics are teetering, it seems, but an expert says it's going to be way more difficult to cancel the Olympics than you would think. It's not just a case of saying there's COVID, cancel. It's far deeper than that. We will explain. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Last week, uh, just hours after Joe Biden was inaugurated as president, we had a discussion on the show. If you were here, you may have participated, you may have listened in. And the discussion was rather simple. Was he going to be good or bad for Canada? It wasn't a question of, do you like him better than the last guy or not as much as the last guy or anything else? Very simple, very straightforward. Simply and solely, would his policies be good for us? Obviously, he's the American president. That's not his number one concern, but we were asking anyway. Well, I am hoping that early returns are not going to be indicative of the long-term picture because after right away canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, which has an impact on Canada, he has now signed a Buy American bill. Not B-Y-E, B-U-Y, much more important. What does it mean? What does it mean to us? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business who joins us this evening. Marvin, how are you tonight? Hello there, and how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, I think I'm doing okay. I mean, look, who knows with these bills how, you know, if we're talking about the economy of this country, how impactful it will be. Buy American, B-U-Y, once again, Buy American, it sounds pretty straightforward if you're just going to follow the name and extrapolate it into what it should mean, is it? Well, I wish all those bills were just as simple as they sound. Um, so let, let me just give a little little um, background on all this. The bill he signed yesterday deals with federal spending. So the federal government in the United States spends nearly a billion dollars a year buying stuff, all kinds of stuff. And as it is now, the preference, the preference wherever possible, is to buy American. So that's that's what's already was there. And then what Mr. Biden did was he strengthened that and he said, okay. We've always allowed people to have exemptions. Uh, you apply, you say, well, here's why we've got to buy something from this country or that country. So he just tightened those up to say, I don't, I don't want as many loopholes. If we're really going to use American tax dollars to benefit Americans, we should really try to do this in the biggest way possible. Now, I, I, I would tell you that when Americans talk about America, they tend to mean they don't want their tax dollars going to buy goods from China or from Russia or from India or even for that matter from Europe. But when you mention their neighbors to the north, we, we sort of have always had this funny little status. No, we're not Americans per se, but we're those friendly neighbors to the north, your sort of kissing cousins. And when push comes to shove, we also remind them that we've signed this little thing once upon a time called NAFTA, now it's called USMCA, which guarantees Canadian companies access to, to buying and selling goods in the United States. And so 
with Mr. Biden's predecessor, not Mr. Trump, but if you go back to the previous administration he was part of, the Obama administration, yeah, it took a month or two or three of gentle coaxing and coercing. And then they went, well, yeah, you're right. This doesn't really apply to you. This applies to those other people. So I realize what it says, and is if you just take it at face value, it doesn't look good for us. But I think Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Biden, because Mr. Biden's also coming to Canada in February, this will be a key thing they talk about, and they will find ways for the American government to buy Canadian products. And why is this important? You know, if we're rebuilding a bridge, if the federal government's rebuilding a bridge in the United States, if they are rebuilding um, an airport terminal, what have you, we want to make sure Canadian steel, Canadian aluminum, those basic kinds of products are part of the mix. And we'll just have to once again remind them, hey, you know, we're not the same as China, and I think they'll adjust accordingly. Did you say, and it may have been a misspeak or it could be the right number, did you say it was a billion dollars that the federal government, it's got to be more than a billion dollars, the U.S. Trillion, I'm sorry. Trillion, sorry, okay. That's okay. I I was just wanting to make sure that I didn't miss here. So um, now you're right. Of course you're right that in the Obama administration, they had something like this that got let up a bit for Canadians. The difference that some people are pointing to is many of the states in the last election and even in the one before that, that Trump did very well in were those heavy manufacturing mm-hmm. states. And so if Biden wants to solidify his position already looking towards four years from now, you want to tell those states that their manufacturing companies are going to be protected and therefore you're going to tip the scales towards the Democrats. Does that not give us less reason to believe that he may back off? Well, look, I don't think we can ever take anything for granted here or that we can ever assume anything here. And you are absolutely right. The law is the law. What it states is what it states. However, you know, given that the previous Democratic administration also saw the light, I I am very hopeful. But until we actually get him to acknowledge this, um, yeah, it's a concern for us all. Now, again, let's understand it doesn't suddenly mean the Canadian goods are being taxed. So the free trade agreement still is in place. Private companies can buy from Canada without an issue. It really deals with that chunk, which is government spending. The other fear, of course, is that if that's good at the federal level, then why wouldn't every state follow suit and say, well, if that's what he wants, let's sign that in New York State or let's sign that in Michigan. And our nearby neighbors uh, that we do a lot of trade with, uh, uh, 35 of the 50 United States' biggest trading partners are Canada, we want to make sure we're in there. So that's, that's why we have to take it all very seriously, and I don't take it for granted. But compared to the Keystone X, uh, XL, XL pipeline, I think we've got a little more wiggle room on this. There, I don't think there's any way Keystone's coming back. The best I think we can hope for there is some compensation for companies that didn't do anything wrong but invested in the last three or four years turned out invested in something that isn't worth anything. But I, th- I am more, much more hopeful on this one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin, I don't want to guess too much on this one, but if I start to think about um, what would be the kinds of things that would largely be in play for federal contracts, that could literally be anything, but what would be the industries that you would think would be most affected by something like this that, that would really be the ones needing the Canadian government to figure something out here with the Americans? Mm-hmm. So I'd be looking at something involving construction in any way. So the people who here locally, for instance, we have a wonderful company called Walters. They provide steel, construction-grade steel, 
for big projects like rebuilding airports or bridges or those kinds of federal buildings, especially if you happen to have an architect that wants uh, you know, unique shapes and curves and bends in the building, Walters is uniquely positioned to provide that. And, of course, an argument they're going to make uh, is to say, look, we, we can provide you something that some other people can't provide you. Uh, you know, steel isn't steel, and it's not always identical. So uh, there is this loophole in there to say if there's something that we can't get in the United States, yeah, we're going to be open to it. Uh, and that's what they're going to try to say. So anything involving construction, certain kinds of aluminum, certain kinds of other building materials, those are the things that the federal government's going to do. We're not really in the market to provide them with paper and pens and, and paper clips as we go. It's, it's the big construction things. That's what I'd worry about. Christia Freeland was asked about this, obviously, as she should be, as the finance minister was asked yep. about this and said, we know, as Canadians, we know how to push back. That was her phrase. Do we? I mean, and, and when I say that, I mean, do we have the ability, we can negotiate, we can ask, but do we really have the ability to push back? Yeah, I understand your question. Do we have a big club? You know, it's fine to walk softly, but do we have that big club? And, and really, exactly. we don't. You know, Canada is one-tenth the size of the United States in terms of population, in terms of the economy. Yeah, Christia Freeland is a great example of someone uniquely positioned. Yes, she's finance minister now, but it wasn't that long ago she was our chief trade negotiator with the United States, and it was with her help that we were able to do the USMCA now, I, I don't know if you've met Christia Freeland, but I think she only stands five foot tall, if that, maybe even four foot eleven. To the average uh, a person in the American government, she doesn't seem like much of a threat. But uh, Robert Lighthizer, who was the chief trade negotiator on the part of Donald Trump, described her as a pit bull. And, and I think what, hap what that means is that we can make our case. Uh, we, don't, we don't go cap in hand. We view ourselves as partners with the United States, and we're there to remind them of certain things. Um, uh, in a way, it's a shame that every four years with a new administration, we may have to remind them again. But on the other hand, Biden is not a complete stranger, and many of the people he's putting into his cabinet are not complete strangers. And so we just need, I think, to let our A-team go do its work make the case for what we, we think is right. As I say, we don't want to provide them with everything. We don't necessarily want access to all contracts, but we just want to make sure that Canadian companies can get access to some of those government contracts, as we have done for years, as we are supposed to do under this USMCA. And just to you know, highlight that, if we don't get access, then what is the value of the USMCA? Now, I realize there are people with Mr. O'Toole, who's the leader of the Conservative Party, Mr. Kenny, who's the leader in Alberta, they're saying, well, put sanctions, put sanctions, teach them a lesson, put sanctions. Generally speaking, sanctions hurt the country that puts them on much more than it does the other country. This was the lesson even Donald Trump should have learned as he tried putting sanctions on China. China didn't suffer through all this. It was the American companies. So I, I don't think we need to go in with sanctions. I don't think we need to go with ball guns a-blazing, but we need to go in firmly and soundly, lay out our case. And I think, you know, I think we will get some access back. Um, again, remember that what, the, what he signed yesterday was a tightening of existing laws. We've been able to succeed with the old laws. Let's try to succeed with these slightly tightened laws. Yes, because one of the uh, one thing that Joe Biden said, and it's a quote that I, I'm sure it caused a lot of Canadian companies to have some shivers, was the previous administration didn't take it seriously enough. He's talking about buy American, which I think a lot of people went, wait a second, I thought Donald Trump's whole thing was buy American. How seriously, were, I mean, are we going to take it now? 
Um, but you know, you pointed out something a few moments ago, and I think it was a very good point, and that is you can always, if you word something different, say, well, this exact thing is not necessarily available in the state. So maybe if it's with wording or verbiage or whatever, maybe that Biden can maintain his political posture to satisfy the base that he's trying to satisfy while still allowing some of this to happen, if we're clever, probably. And that's probably where it's going to come. We have to be pretty clever about how we do this. Well, that's that's one half of it. And the other half of it, as I said earlier, the base is mostly worried about U.S. tax dollars suddenly flowing their way into China, flowing their way into India, flowing their way into Russia. And, and they say, look, that's not right. Now, when you say to somebody, uh, uh, the average American, that, you know, some of this spending is going to go to Canadian companies, they may not be thrilled about it, but they're not marching down the street in protest. But they're, what they're worried about is supporting Beijing and and why are why are we doing that? That was the enemy that Donald Trump made, and and I think America still feels that way. So we are not the same thing. Mexico is not the same thing. Mexico also has a vested interest in making sure that some of the products they might be able to provide more in the southern United States they still have access to. So we also have a friend in this fight. It really is a North American fight. And once once we've done this before, Team North America, the United States tends to go along with us because we're not those people on the other side of the Pacific. Mm. And that's, that's the biggest thing we've got going for us. So um, it will be a challenge. I, I think this is going to be an interesting test of this relationship. We always felt that uh, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Trump were relatively cool to one another, professional but cool really? to one another. The feeling <laughs> is that Biden's warmer and friendlier. They've known each other uh, before. Uh, in fact, you know, in the very first days of the Trudeau administration back in 19... Uh, no, 19, very good, Marvin. 2015, 2016, uh, you know, they were friends at that point. So this is going to be a very interesting first test of uh, what Mr. Trudeau and his team can do. Uh, you know, 19 is not that far off if you just consider the other Trudeau, and then you're bang on, so there you go. Uh, Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Glad to be with you. Now i got to go shovel out that snow. Well, you could probably just do it with a broom. There's not that much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Turns out yesterday was a significant anniversary. And not one we celebrate, by the way. Often anniversaries, you go, oh, yes, let's celebrate. No, no, no. It was the anniversary of the first case of COVID arriving in Canada. Not one that I don't think too many people are saying, we're going to mark that one on the calendar and blow out candles. That, and no, we're, we're, we... It's one of those ones we probably will want to forget, although we never will be able to. This is a, you know, for all of the horror show of everything about being locked up and the people who are sick and the businesses that are hurting and everything else, the one, maybe the only thing you can say as a redeeming feature of the last year or thereabouts has been, well, you know, we heard about our grandparents who went through some moment of history that they will tell their, that's, I mean, if you're looking for something, the one thing that we will be able to say is we lived through a defining moment of modern history. It's not a lot to cling to. I'm I'm not suggesting that we should be whooping it up because we get to experience this. I'm simply saying, if you're looking for any kind of silver lining, well, you've got your history now that you're living through that you'll be able to tell your grandchildren about. That's it. Small mercies. Anyway, it's been a year since COVID arrived. It's been coming up almost now. 
I guess it has been now 10 months because March 13 was the lockdown, right? So January 13 would have been 10 months since we've been in the middle of all this. I know that people are getting antsy. I talk to people. I hear from people. I, I mean, not just on the radio, in actual life. Talking to, well, I mean, very rarely face-to-face anymore, but at least by phone or by video chat or Zoom or whatever, you talk to people. People are desperate now, desperate, too hard a word, really itchy to get back to doing some normal things. And that's what I want to ask you about right now. You have been, if you've been remotely following the rules, you have been locked up now for 10 months for all intents and purposes. And even if you haven't been locked up, you have been unable to participate in life as you knew it before. What is the thing, whenever the day comes that they finally throw open the gates and say, go out and play again, what is the thing that you just cannot wait to do again? What is the thing that you just have been chomping at the bit to be able to get back to doing? I'd love to hear from you on what it is that is just number one on your list. Now, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. What can you not wait to return to or do for the first time? You know, it doesn't have to be something you're going back to. I'll tell you, last, on the weekend, my wife and I were out for a walk. Don't do too many walks these days even because I don't know why we don't. We just don't. And it dawned on us that had we not canceled because of what was going on, that's the day we would have been returning home from a cruise, having been down south in the sun, in the warm, doing all the stuff you do, having a wonderful time. No, didn't happen. That didn't happen. Had to cancel that one. That's something that I am looking forward to is being able to go away again, being able to just get on a plane and go somewhere, preferably somewhere warm, but just be able to go on a vacation. That is right near the top of my list. But what about you? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. What are you dying to do? Sophie is up first. Sophie, how are you today? I am well, as well as it is, you know. Well, yes. (laughs) Someone said to me today, I said, how are you? And they said, I'm not in hospital and I'm not in jail. And so I guess that qualifies as good. So if you're not in one of those two places, you're fine, I guess. Exactly. So, and What are you waiting to do, Sophie? I would love to get together with friends. I have a group of foodie friends and just to sit in somebody's house. I don't, you know, mine, theirs, and just be able to partake of a charcuterie platter, drink Mm. some wine, and just have some good conversation face-to-face. Yes, and not be in a panic if someone happens to cough. Exactly. (gasps) We we see people now, and coughing has become a terrorist attack almost, or at least it seems like it, which is... uh, But yeah, no, that's a... Sorry, go ahead, Sophie. No, I was going to say, I mean, I I don't now, obviously, but I work one day a week... um, after they reopened a little bit um, at a retail store. And, oh, my gosh, you're not kidding. When somebody came in and, you know, they're wearing the mask and everything, but they coughed, and it was like, oh, my God, they coughed. It was terrible. It is, uh, I think a lot of people share your view that would just, is very simple, would just like to be able to get together with friends again and uh, do something that's, you know, so simple but not allowed to do right now. Thank you for the call. Yes. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Hope that it, hope that it does happen soon for you because we're all wanting to be able to just get back to some kind of normal. 
3221 or star 9900. What is the thing that you just can't wait to get back to doing or to get to doing for the first time? It can be like Sophie, it can be something as simple as just sitting around having a glass of wine with your friends in the house or a coffee or going to the gym to play basketball or take, I mean, going to the theater, going out to a restaurant, traveling, hugging your parents or your kids. You know, like the list of things that we're not allowed to do right now is when you really start to break it down, it's a staggeringly long list. What is it on there that you just are dying to do? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is the thing that you just can't wait to get out and do after close to a year now of life as we've never known it before? Kayla joins us this evening on the show. Kayla, how are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Scott? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for calling. (laughs) You're very welcome. What would be your thing that you are just so eager to get to when the opportunity presents? Honestly, I'm eager to get back home. I mean, I'm from Nova Scotia and all my family live out there. I've missed my brother getting married this year and a baby being born. So I'm itching to get back out and take Ben with me. So he can meet the family too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and those are, those are really tough. We have very close friends who their son is waiting with his new wife or with his wife to have a baby. And you know, you're, you're questioning whether you're going to be able to go in the hospital and and be there. It's tough. It's very tough. And to miss a marriage and to miss a, uh, you know, a baby that is, um, that's brutal. That's really, really hard to have to miss that stuff. So it's a good, I understand completely. Yeah. You know, FaceTime only does so much. You can't exactly. (laughs) Hug them through the phone. You can hug the phone, but it, you know, it's not the same. It's so. a great tool. I mean, it's hard to think what we did before we had this. If we had not had FaceTime or Zoom, this time, this last 10 months would have been a million times less tolerable, but you're right. There's only so far that it can go. Oh, for sure. I think I would have gone crazy by then. You and so. many others, <laughs> I'm sure. Kayla, thanks oh, for the call. So. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a great night. You too. Brian is with us now on the Scott Radley Show. Brian, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. What would be your thing that you are just so eager to get to? I mean, the first thing is travel. I'm with you on that one. But I tell you what, I work in business. I work in sales. And I tell you, the hardest thing is meeting somebody and not being able to shake their hand. Yep, that's great. I've I've missed. It's just something. I mean, it's a common reaction to want to do it. Yep. And it just feels like, you know, it's like walking down the street. When you said you were going for a walk, I went for a walk last night, and you feel like a leper because you see somebody coming down towards you, and they cross the street to get away from you. <laughs> so well, and the shaking of just, and Brian, yeah. the shaking of the hand almost seems rude when you don't do it. You're not allowed to, but you feel like you're being rude when you don't shake someone's hand. Absolutely, but it's just, you know, to be able to do that, I, it's a simple thing, but it's a big thing to me. So, Brian, thank you so much for the call. Really appreciate you touching you. base. Take care. Let's go to Jose, who is with us tonight. Jose, how are you? I'm generally well. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. What would be your thing that you are just so eager to do? My thing is dancing. Dancing? Yes, dancing. What, uh, what kind of dancing, or just any ballroom, kind? Ballroom dancing. Really? Yes. Oh, yes. Which I guess is pretty obvious why you can't do that. Um, 
Yes, it's it's quite yes, yeah, quite obvious. I mean, you if you had someone that was your spouse or your person you were living with, I guess you could. But are any ballroom places open these days? Uh, negative, hard no on that one. All right, so and and doing it out on the front lawn might draw the attention of a few too many neighbors and be a little chilly. Um, yeah, it would look it would look just too weird. <laughs> It might, it might, yeah. we, you'd grab attention. I'll give you that for sure. Yeah, uh, Jose, yeah. that's a, that's a great one. I mean, listen, I hope you get back to it soon. I, I, you're the first person who's ever called in to talk about ballroom dancing, but go for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, that's terrific. I think everybody should find a place to dance at and do it and dance once a week. Great idea, Jose. I, I, I don't know that you want to see me ballroom dancing. The few times that I've tried various forms of dancing, it's been an unmitigated disaster. I think my wife's <laughs> knees are well, still in, well, I, the time I, the one time I tried polka dancing with my wife, I almost crippled her. So I'll probably just, I'll stick on the <laughs> sidelines and watch people. But uh, yeah. thanks for calling, Jose. Uh, That's great that yeah, you do that. I bet Thank you, you. you could do, you could get foxy with your wife with no problem. You know, and the other thing is, thanks, Jose. Uh, the other thing is nobody wants to see me in those tight pants and the shirt unbuttoned down to my navel. But uh, anyway, uh, Mary, let's go to Mary. Thanks, Jose. Let's go to Mary quickly. We got time. Mary, how are you tonight? And thanks for calling. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. What would you really, really like to do that you can't right now? Take my husband back out on our dates that we have. We had birthdays in our anniversary plan to go to Joey's or King's Buffet. So, I mean, it's not, it's not extravagant. It's not wild. It's just something nice and simple and fun. Yeah. King's Buffet, definitely for uh, our anniversary or his birthday or my birthday. We're missing out. Plus, also planning, I wasn't going to say it, but also planning for our wedding. And that got canceled. Well, hopefully that still gets, uh, hopefully he didn't get cold feet and decide not to do it. You'll no, still get a chance. it happened to be at the same time we were planning our wedding, this happened. <laughs> well, it's something and to look forward to, right? Well, so everything happened all in, all in, Some, all in one big bundle. Something to look forward to, at least, Mary. You've got that great bobble hanging out there for you guys to work towards. So listen, thank all you right. for calling. I appreciate it. And good luck that that yeah. happens soon. And uh, you and Ben drive home carefully. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, I will drive home very carefully from my basement to my living room. <laughs> but Ben does have to get home. So yes, thank you, Mary. Uh, listen, everyone's got something. Everyone's got something. I get it. And I hope that whatever it is, because I mean, again, one year, boy, it's uh, it feels like more than a year. It really does. But hopefully we all get back to doing whatever it is soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, late last week, there was a report from the Times newspaper in the UK. We talked about it a bit the other day, just this report. Uh, and it said that Japanese government officials, unnamed Japanese government officials, had determined after looking at what was going on in the world and in Japan and everywhere else, that the Olympics simply had to be canceled. There was no conceivable way the games could possibly go on, not with COVID, not with it there, not with it around the world. It just couldn't happen. Well, it took only two, three hours for other Japanese government officials and members of the International Olympic Committee to then come forward very quickly and say, look, that story, absolutely false. Nothing to it. We are going ahead with the Olympics. The Olympics are happening. Don't listen to anything to the contrary. Well, the, the rejections of the story and the insistence was so strong that I almost get suspicious because it was almost like they were trying too hard. Who is it true? 
who's lying, who's not lying, who's, who's telling the truth, who's maybe not sure they're telling the truth or whatever, who knows. But my next guest says and points out that canceling the Olympics, even if that's the smart move, even if that's the thing that by all intellect, we would say, you know, we don't want to, but it kind of has to happen. Even if that was the thing that had to be done, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it may be so difficult that it can't be done. His name is Michael Narain, Dr. Michael Narain. He's an assistant professor at Brock University's Department of Sport Management. He joins me now. Dr. Narain, thanks for doing this today. No, thanks so much, Scott. And also, I just want to uh, point out that, that that quiz question is fantastic, but also a bit of a softball, Scott. We got we got to get more difficult for the listeners out here. <laughs> we will we will see, because you know what? Every time I think I'm throwing a softball, I sometimes find people don't know something. <laughs> and every time I think there's no way anyone's going to know this one, we get 100 answers. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. But um, I'll let you give it, not now, but I'll let you give your answer to Ben at the end and then put you on the list if you can get it. Um, all right, so the games, as everyone knows, the games are were scheduled to be held last summer, got postponed because of COVID. They're scheduled to be held in Tokyo now this summer, starting July 23rd. Uh, I want to get into a few things here, but whether or not the Olympics happen, is this ultimately a decision of the Japanese government to say yes or no? No, absolutely not. So to go off the, the top there, it was what you mentioned. Yeah, it, it's not surprising that Japanese officials uh, you know, domestically are working behind the scenes to say, well, you know what, folks, like, this is probably a really bad idea that the case counts in Tokyo and Japan generally are quite high. And so the writing looks like it's on the wall, again, from a domestic political situation. Now, that being said, as you mentioned, that is the pragmatic move that, you know, if we've got a global health pandemic, it's probably not the best idea in the world to be hosting an international mega event for a two week party, essentially. Um, with people flying in from all over the world, including highly infected areas like Brazil, the United States, uh, and you know parts abroad, and especially underdeveloped nations uh, who may not have necessarily the access to uh, adequate public health resources and vaccines and things of that nature. Now, again, that is the pragmatic idea and the pragmatic notion. The problem is the Japanese government doesn't really have much say here. The agreements for the Olympic Games are made well in advance. There are multiple parties in the framework. And what essentially happens is the Japanese organizing committee is in a legal uh, document, a legal agreement with the International Olympic Committee, who is the event owner. And essentially, if the Japanese try to back out, the IOC is going to sue the pants off of the Japanese. And the reason for this is not from a a people standpoint. Naturally, the IOC doesn't want people to, you know, contract the virus and get sick and obviously, uh, you know, worst case scenario, pass away. However, they are contractually obligated to host the Games, A, and B, the International Committee has, a, uh, International Olympic Committee, rather, Scott, has a lot of money on the table here. Just to give you a little bit of Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 to put it into perspective for the listener, it's not just, so there's two parts of the, that part of the story. There's the obvious media rights implications, which is probably the biggest piece to the pie. You know, NBC in the United States is the front runner for the cash contributions to the IOC. They re-upped their uh, television contract broadcast rights agreement with the IOC, I believe it was a couple years ago, at the tune of $7.78 billion U.S. 
for what I believe is a 12-year agreement. I could be a little bit off on that one, but the the, the numbers are accurate. $7.78 billion U.S., and that's just a, that's just one broadcaster in one jurisdiction. That's not including the CBC here in Canada. That's not including uh, you know Channel Seven in Australia. And we could you know choose your country, choose your media broadcast rights holder. Now that's part one of the conversation. The other part of the financial conversation are the top sponsors. So the International Olympic Committee have a set a group of sponsors that are sort of seen as the big fish, the big cats that really want to associate with the Olympic brand. And the Olympics do a very strong job, or a very good job, rather, of preventing the, the ambushes and others from trying to associate with their product. And so we see the likes of Samsung and Visa and you know, Toyota's jumped in recently. I'm going to give you two really quick examples, Scott, and I'll throw it back to you. You know, uh, Intel, the microchip manufacturer for, for computers, they joined in on the Olympic sponsorship fund uh, to the tune of $400 million U.S., for a four-year deal. And Alibaba, which is the Amazon of China, you know, known for their Alipay and uh, sort of the AliExpress.com sort of websites and e-commerce stuff, they spent and jumped in on the game as well, spending $800 million, again, just for the rights to associate with the Olympic movement. Now, to, to bring it full circle, if the games don't happen this year, and say they're postponed, and we would get two games in 2022, Beijing's Winter Games in 22, and perhaps the Tokyo Summer Games in 22. The problem is the sponsors and the broadcasters who have spent millions and in some cases billions to not only uh, associate but to activate and leverage to say we're part of the Olympic movement. They're going to lose so much money with respect to all of the advertising dollars they've sold, all the spots, all the uh, you know, arrangements and things. It's a financial loss. And it more importantly looks to the future when the IOC comes back to the table to say, hey, folks, now it's time for you to re-up your agreements. These corporations, media or sponsor-wise, are going to look at the, the valuations and say, this is not what it's worth. And your product is now about to be devalued. And so that's why the games will persist, despite the pragmatic approach that, you know what, it's, it should be people over profit. Unfortunately, it's still profit over people. All right. A lot of things you said there that I want to dive into, but let's start with the first, what I think would be the obvious one. And that is, I believe you're 100% correct with the idea of the IOC wanting to make sure they give value to the sponsors. So the sponsors remain in touch, you know, involved with the IOC because they really need them to. But if there is a pandemic going on and the IOC in an attempt to make sure they satisfy the sponsors, demand that Japan open its borders and hold the games, and if they don't threaten to sue them, will that not bring international scorn and disrepute on the IOC to the point where they would say it's not worth it to us? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. It's, it might look a little bit bad on face, but um, and then certainly there's the I know force majeure clauses that will kick into play here. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the, I, the, there is insurance for these things. And so, you know, if the Japanese have to cancel uh, and the IOC tries to force, uh, you know, some sort of lawsuit, you know, it's perhaps the insurance kickers come into play. It's not really something that the IOC wants to do, though, because as I mentioned, the long-term ramifications are quite immense. Now, you, what, the other thing that we have to remember is, there is a little bit of 
desensitization to the situation. And what I mean by that is, you know, j- just look the other day, FIBA has now fined, and FIBA is, is the F- uh, International Federation for Basketball, um, has fined Canada basketball for not appearing at a qualification tournament. I forget where the tournament was, but the, the writing is on the wall. when we see In the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And so the writing is on the wall. When we see, you know, the Australians playing Aussie rules football and cricket, when we see Canadians playing hockey, when we see Americans playing football, uh, the the Europeans playing soccer, the writing is, is, you know, the general sentiment is that sport can happen. Again, I'm not saying that's a right or a, a, a good or a bad thing, but when we desensitize the community and the broader public to the fact that sport can continue, despite one of the greatest global health pandemics we've had in you know, nearly 100 years now, um, you know, that is where the situation will be born out of. So in terms of you saying it might bring the IOC into disrepute, I agree to an extent. However, because we see you know, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and then certainly other leagues around the world, the UFC was in the Middle East on Saturday. You know, when we see when we look at these global sporting properties who are commencing their their activities, it's not going to look as bad. If everyone else was shutting the doors, though, and then the IOC was like, "No, we're going to be the ones to do it," that would bring the disrepute uh, and the ill repute that you're referring to. Well, and Japan certainly has uh, motivation to do this too. Um, the official number. The official cost number for the Olympics so far is 15 billion, but there are reports, even Japanese government reports, that say it's way closer, maybe beyond 25 billion. And now, with the threat that you could be sued for even more, I mean, look, the, the folks in Japan don't want to spend 25 billion dollars for a bunch of facilities and an event that doesn't go off. So, uh, so they are highly motivated to make this happen too. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, there's the reported number and then there's the realized actual number. Scott, the number one issue for the Olympic Games that doesn't get reported as a line item accurately is security costs. Uh, you know, in sort of that post 9-11 uh, state, uh, you know, the Olympic Games have become a very high profile event that is subject to potential terrorist targets. Um, and so security costs tend to be underreported. Um, and then there's a lot of those backdoor deals, the private security companies, all those sorts of things. So you, and security costs alone, you know, if we think back to 2010 in Vancouver, you know, the, the reported cost versus the realized cost, the latter was probably closer to about 7 to $10 billion, to be honest with you. Um, and, and so, you know, when we look at Tokyo, when you think about security costs plus this new line item that we're now introduced to, which is, you know, uh, health, safety, and security, uh, you know, in terms of, sanitization and, and, you know, making sure that there's vaccines and, you know, appropriate medical tents and things like that, you know, that could raise an additional line item. So we're talking, you know, possibly closer to 30 billion. And, you know, it's it's a tough conversation for Japanese officials to have because there's a lot of sunk costs in having a two-week party like this. You invested into your infrastructure, you invested into your facilities, um, and you're expecting to be the global beacon for a two-week period in July. And, you know, but again, to not have the games take place could be more financially discouraging for the Japanese. And while the political climate might be such that they will actively come out and say, you know what, we shouldn't be hosting these things, at the end of the day, and, and that's obviously what, how that report got floated, is, is people backdoor thinking, okay, well, we need to get this out in the media. Otherwise, you know, we could be on the, on the hook for closer to $30 billion. 
it's still likely to be the case that the games take place in July. Although I don't believe you, you've a couple times referred to it as a big party. I, 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 I can't imagine that even if the athletes are there, I can't imagine that things are going to go ahead with the crowds and with the parties and with the events and all the kind of things. I think you may see it, but it would be almost a made for TV sports event where there's not even that many fans there, but we just carry on with the games and broadcast it to the world. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And that's certainly what the IOC is currently working on in, in their headquarters in Lausanne, alongside the, the Tokyo Organizing Committee, is trying to figure out the best ways to package and present the games so that the spirit of the IOC, again, and again, you can take spirit loosely or whichever way you, you, uh, you know, interpret it, um, that the spirit remains intact. Because again, you know, we've got Tokyo, we've got Beijing, uh, and then after Beijing, we've got uh, Paris, then Milan, and then uh, at Los Angeles. And 2032 is just around the corner. Uh, kind of sound, kind of sounds like Fashion Week. It does sound like Fashion Paris, Week. Paris, ba- Paris, Milan, Los Angeles. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. No, there's there's these you know glamorous metropolitan cities that are looking to become beacons uh, on the world stage. And don't be surprised, you know, 2032 is just around the corner. You know, Brisbane, Australia is the front runner there. That's going to be a multi-billion dollar bid. You know, India wants to get in on the action. Qatar in the Middle East would like to get in as well. The, the thing with the Olympic train is they want to ensure that the product continues to enthrall global audiences for years to come. And so while, you know, we, we're a little bit taken aback by this pandemic, you know, the IOC machine, which is 100% corporate, you know, overlord driven, is going to continue. And again, to your, to your point, it may not be the major party that we had in Rio. It may not be the major party that we had even here in Vancouver. But at the end of the day, the IOC will do their best to ensure that the athletes are satisfied to the extent that they can be, um, that they're safe to the extent that they can be. And, and certainly they're going to try and package this product as the epitome of sport on a global stage in order to generate more revenue from sponsors and media. You threw out a really interesting idea and uh, I've not heard it elsewhere. I actually cited it the other day on the show and couldn't remember where I read it. Well, it was you. It was Dr. Michael Norain. So just so people remember who came up with this. And it was the idea that what if they were to take the Olympics, which is generally about a two, two and a half week event and extended it, doubled the event. So we had almost two Olympics. So we had some of the events in the first two weeks, some of the events in the second two weeks, spread out the athletes. So you don't have as many people crammed into the athletes village. Is that realistic? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great, great point, Scott. I, I think, you know, I'd like to think it's realistic because we see it here with the Canada games. Um, it, it happens every, every time the Canada games, uh, occur, uh, you, they split the games into two sets. You know, they let one set of athletes come in, enjoy the opening ceremonies, they compete, then they pretty much kick them out, and then they start with the second set, uh, and then they'll have the second set enjoy the closing ceremonies. I honestly think that is perhaps the uh, common ground or the, um, the, the, the middle ground, I suppose is a better way of saying it, between canceling the games and the you know, full guns blazing, let's, let's have this thing you know, as we would pre-COVID. I, I think that might be the more practical, socially distanced way to do it. I, I've seen the Olympic Village, Scott. I, I've seen those beds. Um, they're not big. It, it, it's very tight quarters. Uh, it's, it would be very easy to transmit a, a virus that is airborne, um, like, like COVID-19. And so 
Uh, I think that might be the best way for Tokyo to do it. I think there's obviously implications there in terms of, uh, you know, athletes and, and, and what they can do, where they can go and eat and all those sorts of things. But, you know, if you were to take all those athletes and cut them in half, you know, in, in terms of being able to track chartered flights, in terms of quarantining, that might actually be the play that the Japanese need to do and work with the IOC to say, listen, we're going to continue this thing, so please don't sue us. But more importantly, we're going to adopt the Australian-style 14-day mandatory quarantine. We're, we're going to have people fly into Tokyo. We're going to put them up in the hotels. Uh, they're going to stay there. And once they go through the quarantine, then they can go to the village. And then that village becomes sort of like a bubble-type atmosphere. We've seen, Scott, that bubbles work in sport. Uh, the NHL bubble was successful. The NBA bubble was successful. The WNBA bubble was successful. So bubbles do work. They are quite expensive. But the Olympic Village can ostensibly become – it is it is de- a de facto bubble. It's just traditionally we've had people coming in and out, whether it's media, sponsors, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. If they cut that off, they increase the amount of sanitation, they increase the amount of social distancing. It's possible, and I do think that two-week – uh, we'll call it a, a two-tier system. I think that could actually work very beneficially for the IOC and the Japanese. Although I will say, cutting the athletes in half would probably impact on their performance. Just it would, <laughs> but it also cut, cut down on oh, the social. I, I, dis- I was going to say it was also going to cut down on the social networking that is involved. We absolutely. also know that athletes like to, you know, there's a lot of testosterone. There's a lot of hormones going around. We do know that athletes like to, to hang out with one another. And so, uh, in a manner that, of speaking, yes. Yeah, exactly. So we also know that that might, might cut down a little bit as well. Uh, last thing very quickly, we only have a minute or so left here. And you mentioned something right off the top about the underdeveloped nations. And this one I find really interesting because we know, uh, look, people here are not vaccinated yet. We don't know when people in the West are going to be vaccinated, but this has been something that's been sort of rumbled about a little bit that says, yeah, you know, we are though a little concerned with some of the countries that are in those underdeveloped nations about what they might bring. I wonder if that becomes an issue that becomes so politically incorrect, you're not even allowed to mention it because it almost kind of could sound xenophobic or kind of sound racist that we're worried about those people and whether or not that's a legitimate concern that we're not really allowed to discuss it and therefore it becomes another problem to deal with. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation, Scott. And just really quickly, I mean, this is something that was that, that came out of 2016 as well in Rio with the Zika virus, right? Like, you know, should we be allowing you know, athletes to come in, do, do they have uh, the proper vaccinations for certain things? Do they have, have they, do they have yellow fever vaccinations? So, so it's, it's a tough conversation to have, but we also need to remember that, you know, while a, a, a country like the United States, which is obviously a developed nation, um, you know, would be seen as okay to fly to Japan. I mean, the United States for, by all intents and purposes has been a gong show for COVID-19 um, whereas a country like Israel has been, you know, paying a premium for vaccines and has been vaccinating their uh, their, their public and their citizens at, at a high high clip. So it is a tougher conversation to have. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's something where we'll have to think about again those other additional measures that can be put into place, such as okay, well, you're flying in from. Uh, you know, maybe a place in South America, in, in Africa, maybe a South African as an example with this new variant. Perhaps they still fly in, uh, all the South African athletes fly in, and they go into that mandatory 14-day quarantine. 
Um, and then again, you know, depending on what the IOC and the Japanese organizers are able to, to do as far as procurement of vaccines, that might be another layer of, of uh, you know, safety later on. Um, I, I do suspect that that will be a part of their COVID plans, some sort of bubbling in the village, mm-hmm. perhaps the, the two-tier system. But I do think a 14-day quarantine before the games is likely to occur. Australian style, as well as the procurement of those vaccines and, and getting them into athletes from perhaps underdeveloped nations. Dr. Michael Lorraine from the Brock Sport Management Business uh, Program. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. No, thanks so much, Scott. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.